I'm Peyton. This is the Rhizomatic Reader Podcast. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Emma Larkins about Elizabeth Alexander's memoir, The Light of the World. You can find the shorter, edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Hello. Hello. You can hear me? Yeah, great. Wonderful. Is my air conditioner too loud? No. Mine is loud, too. It's all good. I don't even hear it. Or at least I don't think so. Great. I keep one. I keep one earbud uh, or one earphone off my ear so that I don't, because I have two separate systems here. So I sort of do this thing so that I don't scream at you. You know, <laughs> I don't want to scream. And what? And these are like noise canceling headphones, which are great, except that it mm-hmm. makes you feel like you're talking a lot louder than you are. So, mm-hmm. or that you have to talk louder. How are you? I'm good. You're yeah, good? I'm doing well. What's I, going on? I've just had a good day. Um, yeah, it's beautiful here. I went for a walk. I had a, I'm in a deconstructing whiteness group that I like literally was just in. So <laughs> there's been a lot more talking for me than normally happens in a day. But it's okay. good. Okay, that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah. I'm excited to talk I to you. I am so excited to talk Happy to you. Happy birthday to James Baldwin also. Happy birthday to James Baldwin. I thought so of you. Oh, great. <laughs> I love seeing him all over the, uh, the internet, you know? Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. It's just mm-hmm. wonderful. Thanks for thinking of me. Other people have thought of me too. <laughs> I bet. How are things for you? They are so great. I'm loving the. Um, it's the end of summer, as you know. So this mm. is, you know, we're a couple of weeks away from the start of fall term. Mm. And so I have a lot of work to do. But that aside, I'm loving the. Um, the podcast project. I'm mm. loving talking about books with people in depth. I'm loving reading all of these books that people are having me read, all different mm-hmm. things that I've never read. So at least so far, that's been the case. Mm. And um, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing that's happening. People are responding well to the podcast. So I think that's nice. Um, I don't know if you've listened or not, but I have. Yeah. Well, Ferran said you might be a little nervous. And I said, oh, no, just we literally just talk. (laughs) There's literally so much to talk about with these Mm -hmm. books, all of them. I'm, you know, I sent you some notes. I don't know if you got them or not. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, just, you know, we'll help guide the discussion a little bit and we'll just see where it goes. I think for me, it's that this book just like felt so supremely precious. Like it just like, if there's like a quadrant of my heart, it's like Elizabeth Alexander in this book now. But like, I don't know, I want to do it justice. And that I can't control who's going to listen to this. (laughs) You can't control who's going to listen to it. 
you know, and, and forget that it's recording. <laughs> yeah, just forget about it. Like, just talk to me. Uh, mm-hmm. It won't be um, anything too strenuous. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a lot to talk about with the book, and we'll we'll get mm-hmm. to that. But I sort of have been starting all of my conversations by having people talk a little bit about their reading life and mm-hmm. the history of their reading life. One thing that I know about you is that you are such an avid and voracious reader, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of ties the two of us together in a particular way. And I'm so glad that I know you, mm-hmm. someone else, because you're such a reader. So when I asked you about that, how did you start to think about it? I thought of a couple of different things. And I think first off, it, it was an interesting question because for me, reading almost feels like brushing my teeth like it's just like this is just a feature of my day like in most cases I wake up I grab my coffee and I'm reading Mm -hmm. um and it kind of like transitions me into my day Mm. and I end with reading and sometimes I even like on my lunch break like I don't know it's just become this almost grounding exercise for me um But I also, I thought about my childhood and because like it it does feel so normalized for me, I've I've just, I've always been this way um, Mm. when it comes to reading. Like I was very much that kid who um, I got in trouble for bringing my books to the dinner table or staying up too late, like I would get caught under my covers with the flashlight reading and um, no one else in my family really read. So it did make me sort of this kind of anomaly. Like I I think my parents, bless them, were just sort of like, like, why does this have to be a contentious point? Like I'm going to put down your books and like join the human world. Um, But for me, it just brought this wonderful escape from a pretty chaotic and like very loving but just like very chaotic home I was right in the middle child of five and um, there was just always a level of noise and activity that to me now knowing that I have anxiety I can name like you know reading was a way for me to manage these feelings of like everything in my environment is out of control Mm. um to me and how I felt. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. Reading has just always been my favorite mode of learning. Um, I am, I think, probably intensely curious, and reading is just like a wonderful venue for that. Um, so you it, said it's also just a source of pleasure. Yeah. So you said that you didn't grow up in a family of readers. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel like you found reading to begin with? Or how did you discover that it was something joy-inducing or anxiety-reducing or pleasurable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out as I was reflecting on this question, and I don't remember. But we definitely did have a home where there were books. Like I, I sort of 
I do have very like strong memories of scavenging like my sister's bookshelves and um, I had teachers who I think saw that they couldn't keep me in the curriculum fast enough and so I got to use the library um, you're talking to the fifth grade accelerated reader champion. <laughs> yes. Okay. I loved my elementary school librarians and they would, you know, help me find um, books that were increasingly bigger and, you know, on things that I was curious about at the time. So I don't remember how I got into reading, but I know that I definitely had people who, who found ways to foster and to, and to help me. Um, who encouraged me in that way. Mm -hmm. And so then you went on to school, of course. Did you major in literature? I realize I should know this, but I don't know this. Oh, that's fine. Um, I did. I went in thinking I would be pre-med. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Hmm. And everybody, everybody being my, my parents and some of my high school teachers, why, why don't you think about English? But to me, I... I, I was the, my sister and I are the first in my family to go to college. And so for me, I was very much like cognizant that my major, in my head, I told myself a story of my major will dictate my career. And when I thought of an English major, it was like teaching or something. I don't know. I just didn't know what I could do with an English major, but I did end up taking a literature class in my first term and it, I, I just, I loved it. Um, and so over, I did end up leaving behind my science uh, trajectory and, and doing literature and history. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the same academic majors from undergrad. <gasps> Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I went into college thinking that I was going to be a high school English teacher. And then, so I majored in English right from jump and history, mm. and I mm -hmm. never changed my major. Mm. I stuck with it the whole time. Um, and then I decided I didn't want to teach high schoolers because I had to do all these practicum hours. And I realized very quickly that High schoolers don't actually read the books. The type of experience, <laughs> yeah. the, the type of experience that I had in high school, in kind of advanced classes and honors classes, where people read the books and we had really intense discussions, which is what I like doing, mm -hmm. uh, was not really what was happening most of the time. So mm -hmm. I, I abandoned that, and then reading just became, you know, a part of my lived experience, like you, where mm -hmm. I'm a fairly voracious reader and have a house full of books. I, I know that you all, I see all your color coded red books behind you. <laughs> you should tell people about that. What do you do with your books at your house? I, I have them color coded, which some people have called me a psychopath and that's fine. Um, but for me, when I am thinking of a book, I do this in class too to my professor sometimes and it drives them bananas, but I'll be like, Oh, it's, you know, the book that has the red cover and that person's face. So for me, I remember a book visually. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I like an orderly home. And I just know if I did alphabetizing because I, I used to do that, that I can't 
keep up fast enough or if it's not right, it just doesn't feel as good. So um, all of my books are arranged by colors because I can still find all of my titles and the books that I'm looking for. So I do have them pulled out like my, my school books are in their own shelves, but pretty much everything else is arranged by color. That's amazing. <laughs> How do you decide what you're going to read? What do you like reading in general? Before we get into the book for this week. Mm -hmm. Well, right now, first it's, is it assigned to me in class? Mm -hmm. I, that's always my kind of primary determiner. I don't know. Um, like if, if I'm in, if I'm in uh, a term, like my, my class reading has to come first, but then beyond that, I, I think it, it just depends on how I'm feeling, what level of emotional engagement I'm looking to get into. Um, maybe sometimes like current events will shape um, or if there's a book that's in kind of conversations that I'm listening or reading about. Um, but I, I usually start each month with an idea of like, if I feel good, I'd like to get to these books and I'll kind of use that, but I'm, I'm not great with having books assigned to me outside of a class setting. So if someone like I've had trouble with book clubs because <laughs> if I don't want to read the book, I'm not going to. And that's sure. Yeah. Counter to the point of it. Um, yeah. I, I do think like my mood and my emotional capacity tends to dictate. So what's the, What's the range of what you read? Do you read mostly fiction, memoir, autobiography? What, like, what are the things that you're engaged with? It's really a little bit of everything. Um, like I can, like in the month of July, it was, there was some mystery. There was mm. a little bit of fantasy. Like I've been digging into N.K. Jemison because I just was like, I'm kind of tired of, this world right now and I, I could see other world systems and I think N.K. Jemisin does like world building really um, in interesting ways. So I did that. Memoir, nonfiction. I'm trying to catch up on some class reading so that tends to be um, more sociological um, or like gender theory. Um, there's really no rhyme or reason. I, I kind of love a little bit of everything. So do you just literally sit down at the beginning of a month and just say to yourself, this is what I'm going to do this month? Like you sort of take a check of where you're at temperamentally or emotionally and be like, this is what I'm doing? Pretty much. Yeah, I have um, like... Like I have some class reading that I know I need to get to just in terms of like my dissertation progression. So those are like higher on my list of priorities, but I just start making piles. Like I just pull things off my shelf of like, I, yeah. And I just kind of make piles and like, as I um, am called to it, I read it throughout the month. <laughs> That's amazing. So when I invited you on the podcast, you selected this book and you sort of started talking about this a little bit. 
at the beginning that Elizabeth Alexander's book has a special place in your heart. <coughs> okay, let me say that again so that I can edit it correctly. Um, as I'm choking over here. Okay, so when I invited you on the podcast, um, I asked everyone to pick a book, and you sort of said at the beginning of this conversation that this particular book by Elizabeth Alexander, The Light of the World, has a particular resonance for you. So tell me about your relationship to this book, how you mm -hmm. found it, why you think it's so important for people to be aware of it. Um, so this is a book that's been on my bookshelf for less than five years. I can tell you that because I bought it, my partner and I, we were long distance for um, the first four years of our relationship. And whenever he flew into Portland, I would go pick him up from the airport and be like, uh, do you want to just like stop by Powell's, which is this incredible, yeah, the giant, huge, yeah. yeah, independent bookstore in Portland. And so, um, he was always a really great sport and would go with me. And this was one of those like just massive stacks of Portland purchases that I made. I don't even remember like how it came on my radar, what made me pull it off the mm. shelf and purchase it. Um, it was probably because it was a Pulitzer um, like finalist. I right. probably saw it on some list and thought it looked important. So I bought it, but um so it's been on my shelf for a while and I just, it was one of those mood reads that I had pulled in May and I'm actually really glad that I read it now and not, you know, three or four years ago because something about just where I am in my relationship and my, my romantic partnership um, to be more specific, but also just in kind of my life experience like this book just like took me out at my knees and I think four years ago I would have read it as a text you know just like mm. I think I probably would have recognized the beauty of Alexander's writing but I don't think it would have just like completely kind of unsettled me personally in the ways that it did um, because of you know, by way of where I was in my life at that time. Um, but I, yeah, I guess I had two minds when I was trying to choose a book. It was like I could choose something that I absolutely hate and hope that it would have like interesting discussion qualities or I could choose something that just like, yeah, just was like a piece of my heart. And um, I, I guess, yeah, I went with it for that reason. Um, so you but, read the book and you've listened to it on audio. You did it both ways because we were sort of communicating a little bit before the episode. Yeah, I was terrified that I would uh, like forget something important or sure. I don't know. So, and um, Alexander reads her audio book and it's mm -hmm. under four hours. So I, mm -hmm. I felt like it would just lend a different uh, perspective on it. So you said that um, the book has a particular emotional resonance for you, having just read it recently. Mm -hmm. What would you say 
are some of the reasons that that emotional resonance comes through? Which parts of the book really tugged at your emotional heartstrings? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it is a book of her processing grief. Yeah. And I, and I think for anyone who has experienced loss or just, you know, like we're all going to experience loss at some point. And so yeah. I think it's just this wonderful, this wonderful portrait of a grief cycle. Um, mm-hmm. But before like anyone thinks like, oh, it's just about death. Like it's also this, for me, it was as much about life as it was about death. Yeah. And you just see this like beautiful, gentle, quiet story of two people who are profoundly in love. And I think because it was this like quiet, gentle story of their love told in vignettes and just like how they learned to have two tea kettles and how they chose a home. And like, it, yeah. it wasn't this like grand sweeping travelogue of two people who like pursue the world. And they did that, but that wasn't the story she told about their relationship. And to me, that was so moving. Yeah. It's, it is a profoundly sad book. Um, in a certain way. Uh, Books rarely make me cry. Uh, A good marker of a book is if I am crying. And I think that, well, I cried a lot when I was reading this book. Like (laughs) I would go through these like emotional waves. And I think part of the reason is because the way that Alexander constructs the book is that she sort of, you know, if you read the jacket cover that it's about the sudden loss of her husband yeah. or the death. She has that beautiful line in there about like, why do we say that we've lost our husbands right. when right. we won't find them? Like they're, yeah. they're, they're dead, they're gone. Um, but the way that she constructed the book is very interesting in terms of taking you through, like you said, this grief cycle, the emotional issues that come up around He's here one day, he's gone the next. Mm-hmm. It's very sudden. Mm-hmm. It's tragic what happens to him. Um, I don't know, like, did you, how do you feel like she is able to do that? Because the book itself is not written in this very difficult language. It's not dense. Right? right, it's not this overly dense memoir like they mm-hmm. sometimes can be. It's it's very light to a mm-hmm. certain way. It it feels light, even mm-hmm. well. The title of the book, "The Light of the World," you know. Mm-hmm. What about the way that she writes? Does that? I think because it is so simple, you understand the magnitude of her loss. Yeah, and and I think she does. She, she tells so many of those little stories just to show you that, like, for her, Fikre was the light of her world mm-hmm. or a light in her world. And so when she 
And I think you get just like this sense for like, she's lost her partner and her lover and the father of her children, but also, you know, the, the person who had all of these random little pockets of knowledge, like she, she has a, in one of the sections she writes about like all the books she'll never read because he won't be there to tell her to read them. Oh my gosh. And I think you also get like, it could have been very easily like this book that is talking about, you know, well, she, she's also grappling with the injustice of the loss that, that he hmm. ate blueberries and flaxseed oh, right. and ran on the treadmill and she ate, bacon and yeah uh, you know like why is it that he's gone and so young I he was I think 55 um, was 50. So, 50 thank you yeah so you just get this sense of like her grappling with the future that she's not going to get with him because he's gone and gone so soon and for me that just like that just destroyed me yeah, I I appreciate you bringing up the 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 thing about the books because this is one of the quotes that I pulled mm. uh, on my little cheat sheet. It's uh, quote number four in my section, and I, I love this section. the 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 book is broken up into these four different. Um, these four different sections and two of the sections have are labeled after lines of poetry. She's of mm. course a poet and the mm -hmm. book itself is titled after a line of poetry from one of their favorite poets, Derek Walcott. Mm -hmm. But she, she has this section in the grieving process where she finally goes to a bookstore mm -hmm. some months after he has passed. And she says, quote, he is the ghost of all bookstores. Carrying home a bag of books, I think of all the books I will never know about because you will not show them to me. I think of the loss of knowledge, all the things I will never know because you are not here to tell me. I cannot ask questions. I cannot be reminded. It's on page 148. Um, he is painted in a very heroic way. And I think that he's also painted in a very worldly, almost otherworldly way to a certain uh, degree. And this is one of the things that you pulled out, one of your quotes, which I think is a point that's, that's really worth talking about. Um, it's your fifth quote, and I wondered if you'd read it, and then I, I want to talk a little bit about how she creates his character and how mm -hmm. we become emotionally attached to Fikra as, as a person who is a part of the story but is obviously gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the passage is from page 212, and Alexander writes, but he lives in its pages, and like other heroes of literature, he teaches us something good about how to live our days in detail. Every day can have beauty and tenderness at the simplest level of the meal and a flower in a garden. Every day can contain some small pleasure. Every act can have integrity, 
be courageous and be guided by kindness. Yeah, he is this wonderful, almost idyllic man in the book. He knows seven languages. He mm. knows how to cook. He's a painter. <laughs> he reads books. He's a lover of children. He has a great laugh. He knows how to garden. I mean, he's got all of these. It's like if you read an old romance novel um, or like an old 19th or 18th century Victorian novel of like, what is the perfect man? And she paints him as this, he is perfect. He has some flaws, but mostly, yeah, even the thing that you said about you know, he eats blueberries and yogurt, he's healthy, he runs and exercises. I mean, all this stuff. I don't know, just what did you think about him as a person as you got to know him in the book? He, yeah, Secret is this, like, he does come off as this savant in so many ways of someone mm, who can That's decide. a good word decide to paint and become a professional at it or um and loves cooking so he opens a restaurant where yeah. he's making eritrean food um because he's a refugee from eritrea and mm -hmm. you know he just does these things and he seems to be able to do all of them flawlessly right and i guess in to that i i didn't feel a need to question alexander on it like it is her mm -hmm. memoir and it is her remembering her husband and her processing the loss of him and um there's a there's a a passage where she's finally kind of um cleaning out their home and she's describing like he had received a bread um a bread maker and so he had bought all of these different types of um flowers because he was gonna you know master all these different things and i was like <gasps> like i had such a clear vision of this man who like has a passion of the month and he goes really hard at it and like how frustrating that might be for her to like, why do we need five types of flour when we just, you know, like you are not a friend, like a, like bread making isn't your profession. Um, so I, I guess I didn't need like a, here are all of his flaws as well. I, I was willing to let her make him the hero of this story. And I think he, he does feel heroic in so many ways as someone who, survived a war in Eritrea and had to go through so much to become the man that he did in being in in escaping Eritrea and having to live in so many countries and um, his family tells Alexander like you're so lucky to have a man who has drunk his water like he's had this whole wild yeah. life before you met him and so now he's content at home and with family and like he he's lived his life in the wild ways that he needed to to become the person that he did who met you and 
I don't know. I, I was willing to let him be a hero. I didn't need, I didn't need to know about his flaws for the purpose of this book. Oh yeah. And I'm not really sure that's what I was um, saying. I was, mm. I was mostly saying like, but I appreciate you saying the response the way that you did, because I think the thing is though, that like you said something that at the beginning where you said, you know, this really isn't just a book about loss. It's a book about life Mm -hmm. and about how to live. And that is exactly what I was thinking as I went through the book. I even had written that in one of my margins. I was like, this is a book about how to live a good life, how to Mm -hmm. live a life of beauty, how to overcome terrible situations and still come out on the other side as a person who is well-rounded and just vivacious about life. Like I I felt like he was a vivacious person. You know, he just, I just want to, I know, I want to know how to cook. I want to listen to all the music. Mm -hmm. I want to like, even the thing about like, he, he liked to wear, flashy colors out in public, you know, like a pop of color, pink, right? Was his color. Mm -hmm. Um, I just like pictured this man and I was like, I totally get it. I can totally see it. Mm -hmm. He's a beautiful person. Yeah. And it's not fair that he was taken away so soon. Yeah. So the injustice part is very real. Yeah. What are some of the, um, you know, for you, what are some of the things that you're taking away from the book in terms of how to live a good life? Mm -hmm. Is that something that resonated with you or not really? No, I, I did think a lot about that because she does present her husband as someone who was so profoundly driven by a sense of purpose and who seemed to Mm. have maybe less concern with the delivery. Like it wasn't like I am an artist and this is my gift to the world. And like for a time it seems like maybe that was, but that he was so centered on community and the pursuit of beauty and care for his people. And it seems like that was a pretty extended community of people, but that he took such purpose in the pursuit of those pieces that I found incredibly inspiring. Um, and, And again, I think like my my context really made it all the more powerful because I am finding myself in this like weird middle space in terms of my career. And like I recently was put into a job that I myself did not choose. And, and for me trying to untangle purpose and career has been something I've been working on or thinking a lot about and to find this this example or this narrative of someone who found a lot of purpose 
not in his profession, but in the way that he lived, I, I thought was incredibly impactful. And I think how Alexander shows you how they managed that together in their partnership was really, for me, a powerful model as well. Yeah. Well, his art is really important. He also seems like someone who was quite, I don't want to say shy, but he was humble. There's something about, he's a painter Mm -hmm. and he paints a lot of these images of angels and nature scenes and other types of things. She goes a bit into that. Um, But there's also that scene where she talks about how he didn't want to sell any of his work. He he was this beautiful sentiment about art outlives the person. And he Mm -hmm. sort of thought of it as like a way of, of dealing with his grief, his anxiety from what happened to him as a, a child. I think this is another one of the quotes that I pulled out from page 17. This is actually like an interview that I think Fikra did. Um, And he said that his paintings flowed out of me, very painful and direct. They had to do with the suffering, persecution, and subsequent psychological dilemmas I endured before and after becoming a young refugee from the independence war. Painting was the miracle, the final act of defiance through which I exercised the pain and reclaimed my sense of place, my moral compass, and my love for life, end quote, on page 17. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I I just wondered what you thought about the function of art in this book. It seems very powerful to me mm-hmm. in terms of what Alexander is trying to do and, and not just art in the terms of painting. There's many mm-hmm. forms of art in the book. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Yeah, I think she has a lot of questions that she's asking and just things that she's ruminating on and beauty and art is obviously or was obviously such a central piece in their relationship and the home they built and um, even the worldviews that they gave to their sons Mm. Um, and what at one point she's reflecting on how for her, for, for poetry, like she relies on what she can see and her memory and experiences that happen. But Fikre, he has something in his head and then he figures out the right mm. colors and the right way to like bring that into, into, a, um, into his painting. Like he finds ways to, to bring that in. But I think there's also just like all these little ways that they found they found to bring beauty into their world. And it, and I think in thinking about the light of the world, I think you can read that as much about Fikre as you can think about it as their relationship to art and beauty in their life. Um, and one of the, I don't think I pulled this out in my quotes, but there's this 
oh, it's just like heartbreaking um, scene where her her son invites her to to travel to heaven with him. Oh my gosh, it's terribly sad. It's terribly sad. Oh, I was bawling my eyes out. It's so, and he he guides her through this glass elevator that takes him mm-hmm. up to heaven, and she can meet Fikre again and see that he's in an apartment that has a single mm-hmm. bed and a room of painting, like a room for painting, and you know, here are the views that he has in heaven. Um, but you probably shouldn't come here again because I don't think you can do it on your own yet. Um, but like in those little moments that she she gives you insight into her sons and like how they make sense of the world and dreams i think you can also see how their artistic perspectives and ability to view the world are are being taught to these young boys these these young men well i do think that you pulled a quote out about this i think you pulled something out i want to i want to talk about this because it's so powerful in the book i think that you pulled this quote out of when she runs into this priest or this religious mm-hmm. person at the whole foods of all places months after fikre has died yeah. and and this is what he's talking about what what does he say to them you and Fikre were blessed to be artists who take in the world that way, and so your closeness was sanctified, and your children were blessed to have you as parents, and your sons will always be blessed to have had that their father. That will never change. Then he said, don't ever let anyone guilt trip you or tamper with what you know of your sacred love. And that's on mm. page 114. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that when you were talking that it just struck me about this kind of the function of dreams in the book is so important and the the purpose of imagination. So mm. this this scene with the son you know asking her to lay down in bed. It's really and they go to heaven in the glass elevator. And it's, it's interesting. It's a glass elevator just because like, if you've been listening to the podcast, here's like a connection, right? It's like, oh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory glass elevator, Elizabeth Alexander glass elevator. It's like, what? Um, So there's that, but, but the function of imagination and you said she seems much more of I don't want to say like a literal person, but she seems to translate things that she sees Mm -hmm. into poetry. He seems to be somebody who tries to, and she says this, imagine a world other than what it is. Or I think she says something like he imagined the world as he wanted it to be. And that's what he painted. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm just thinking about like how that gets juxtaposed throughout the book, particularly after he dies and she has all these dreams of him. That, that whole part of the loss process, the grieving process was so painful to read about mm-hmm. her dreaming about him. And then that page where she says he's gone. He's mm-hmm. not going to come to my dreams anymore. Oh, mm-hmm. I was like, 
oh god <laughs> i kept writing mm-hmm. like oh my god oh my god <laughs> it's like so painful to think about that i don't yeah. know it's really be- it's lo- it's lovely and i i think she's she's asking herself and trying to figure this out for herself of mm-hmm. of how much how much can you remember? Like how much of your day do you spend remembering? Um, And for her, like dreaming is a way that she gets to be with him again. Um, But I, I don't know. It it felt like she was asking herself, like how much of this should I be doing? You know, like how much do you hold on to in that way before it becomes not not productive isn't the word but, but just how do you move forward and if she's trying to like keep him in her mind and to to kind of paint him into this like when does she stop allowing him to come to her dreams or when does she like stop pursuing those dreams i think, i guess is what i'm trying to say Yeah, and in fact, I think it's a profound question that comes at the end of the book in the afterword. It might even be like in the reading notes or something. It's it's not part of the narrative, but she she asked this question. She says, How do you start again and carry the past within you? Mm. Why is it important to carry that with us? And I agree with you. I feel like the book is to a certain extent this kind of examination of memory work and Mm -hmm. what is the role of memory and how, because she keeps having these moments where she says like, I have these memories, I have to write them down because they might be fleeting. But then at what point do I have to stop writing them down? And you mentioned the cleaning out of the house. Mm -hmm. How long do you hold on to stuff? I mean, there are all these things. They're not really well elaborated on. They don't need to be. They're just, you can imagine it. Another one for me was like this. She says, I paid his cell phone bill for a year and a half after he died because I didn't want to lose his text messages. Yeah. And so you think about, wow, to... How do you, when do you decide? How do you decide? The paintbrushes, the flour mm-hmm. and the bread machine, like you talked about, the, and even the house itself. Right. The physical house. I don't know. And I, and I think she makes this incredibly brave decision of he's not here anymore. He's not in this home. Mm-hmm. And I think just even if you haven't experienced loss it's easy to imagine wanting to just stay like like he chose this home and he is in the wall colors and the garden and so i'm just going to stay here and that you know cements my my memory and my relationship to him but she she does decide like he's not here so 
our time in this home is done and and she moves to new york and i just i thought that was incredibly brave and also painful <laughs> yeah although i thought that the decision about leaving the house was maybe not as painful to read about Mm-mm. because of the way that she constructed the narrative as maybe some of this other stuff that she really had to make some difficult decisions about regarding like his artwork or Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I felt like by the time we got to the decision to leave the house that it was like clear because Mm -hmm. she did kept dropping these lines in. Like first it started with the dreamscape. Like he came to my dreams he shifted in my dreams. He no longer comes to my dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not here anymore. Go ahead. You do know she's okay. Yeah. By the time she does leave, you, there is sort of a sense that like, it's, it's a decision made out of her being okay. Yeah, there's even the thing about the garden, right? I mean, one of the things that I loved about the book was that he was obviously a gardener and like he liked plants and there's all this like beautiful visual imagery about the flowers that he planted so that they would bloom on her birthday and the mm. the tree and like, you know, so they I think they stay in the house like maybe one year and four months ap- mm. after his death. Um, So they go through one kind of like seasonal cycle and, you know, she has these moments where she's like, oh, these flowers came up and she tells the kids, you know, that's daddy talking to us. Like, you know, daddy's here, the, the visual of the wicker table where he drank his coffee out on the patio, um, all this kind of stuff. But then he is gone. He's not there anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. So it raised for me like the other part of this book that I just thought was so, these are actually the parts of the book that probably made me cry the most was all these questions about what is the human soul? Mm. And how do you, how do you determine when somebody has quote unquote gone? Mm -hmm. Like not just their physical body, but like their soul, their essence Mm -hmm. is no longer there anymore. Those mm-hmm. were the parts for me, Emma, that made me cry mm. uncontrollably was when she was having all these things about, about the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, on page 42, for example. Now I know for sure the soul is an evanescent thing and the body is its temporary container because I saw it. I saw the body with the soul in it. I saw the body with the soul leaving. And I saw the body with the soul gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's even this, there's this section in the beginning when he dies where she, she says this thing about the soul is the soul of a human is captured in the last breath. Mm-hmm. And she has this 
she tells the story about how Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, Mm -hmm. like Henry Ford, I think captured Thomas Edison's last breath or something like that. Yeah. um, Which is very sad. um, And tried to capture it in a test tube because they were like good friends or something like that. But then she has this line right after that, which is so painful to read about the soul. Fikre breathed his last breath into me when I opened his mouth and breathed everything I had into him. Mm. He felt like a living person then. I am certain his soul was there. Mm -hmm. Ooh, (laughs) I just, I couldn't handle it. It was so painful. Mm -hmm. So painful. Mm And it's like that tentative questioning of like, did I capture his last breath? But then throughout the book, you can tell she's taught, she's spoken with all of these medical professionals. And in one case, the doctor says, you know, he was, he was gone before you got to him. Um, and so like, does it, does it matter? Like, to her, she felt like she captured his last breath. To him, he felt like he was still there, that he saw her face one last time in the hospital in spite of all these different insights lended by medical professionals. And I don't think, I don't know. To me, it didn't feel like there was an answer, but I don't think there needs to be. But just asking those questions, I think, is... mm. Well, yeah, I don't know that there's an answer. I think that what she does, though, is she's talking about, for me, it's like she touches so profoundly on, there's the moment of death. You know, she tried to save him after he had his heart attack, and Mm -hmm. she couldn't. So there's the breath thing, and there's the soul leaving the body. Mm -hmm. but then there's like this idea all throughout the book that like somebody's essence, you know, if you think about it as like spirit, she doesn't use the word spirit, but like their essence, their spirit is like in a place for a time, Mm -hmm. but then eventually that goes away. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like what she's trying to do is say, The process of grieving is about coming to terms with the fact that at some point they they are really gone. Like Mm -hmm. it it they are gone. And it's not it's not the moment when the body actually physically dies. There's there's some elongated period, and I don't think that it it's gonna be different for every single person. You know, but I just, I just thought she did a masterful job of explaining like how, you know, it's time to let go and move on. And that's why that question that I asked, you know, which she asks in the, in the afterword of the book, which is uh, this thing about, um, how do you start again? Mm-hmm. 
Because I think so much, I mean, I don't know that much about grief and grieving and death, but I think so much of what happens in these kinds of talks is that people maybe feel a certain amount of guilt Mm -hmm. for leaving, you know, leaving the home, throwing Mm -hmm. away the paintbrushes, Mm -hmm. doing whatever. Um, And she just says, no, remember, carry it with you. For her, write it down. Mm -hmm download all the CDs into the cloud so that Mm -hmm. you don't have to carry the physical CDs, but you have his, she calls it his musical DNA, which I think was just (laughs) so beautiful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, by the way, I started a, there's so much music in this um, book that like so many artists that are listed and songs and stuff. I started a Spotify playlist just for this book because I was like, Oh, this is like a part of what you, this is a part of understanding him as a person. Mm-hmm. And so I now have like over three hours of music. I just went and grabbed a bunch of stuff. And so if you go to my Spotify, you can find it. That's amazing. Is it, 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 it is hard. Yeah. I. Have you ever I, experienced loss like this? Yeah. Maybe not, yeah, um, not of a partner or anything in that way, but I think Mm -hmm. the loss of my grandparents and several aunts, I I did think a lot about that because it did make me think of my own cycles with that and where there is a time where like every day right after like you like something makes me think of them or, you know, mm. and the process of like helping clean out their homes and having to make some of those decisions and just how painful that is. But then even now having realization of like, Oh, I haven't thought about grandpa and like, like really explicitly thought about grandpa in a while. And like that in its own way is painful and then also experiencing life moments of like, I'm getting a doctorate. Like I would love to tell my aunt Judy about that because she would just like lose her mind. Like this is everything she used to say she envisioned for me or like wondering, you know, with my partner, like how would of introducing him to my grandparents, you know, what would that have been like? Or, mm-hmm. or just like knowing like, certain people aren't going to see these benchmark moments for me. And like, that's hard. Mm -hmm. One thing that she doesn't necessarily spend too much time in the book talking about, but that I kept thinking about was these two boys, you Mm -hmm. know, Solomon and Simon. I mean, they do come up in the book, Mm -hmm. but I kept thinking about, you know, how did she navigate them through the grief cycle? How was their grief cycle different? Mm-hmm. You don't really learn too much about them other than the scene that you brought up with Simon, who's the younger one, taking mm-hmm. his mother on this imaginary elevator ride to heaven to see their father. And then this kind of 
actually, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this because there is a sort of like a gender role chapter about like the boys growing up and becoming basketball players and toxic masculinity and stuff. I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about that or not, but you're a gender studies person. So I just, I just wondered if what she, how did she usher them through the grief cycle for themselves? Mm-hmm. Why did you cringe when I brought that chapter up? Um, I was laughing yesterday when I was listening to it, maybe because of the medium, um, it, it, or maybe just because I knew what was coming, it was a lot less emotional for me. Mm. Um, and I, I guess I could kind of just understand it differently, but I, I found myself thinking like, this is such a like cis heteronormative <laughs> book. Like this is a very, like she has a very clear vision of her role and he had his very clear vision of his role. And, um, but there are little insights that she offers into rebuilding life without Fikre and you can see her sons like taking on some of those like this was dad's manly role and so a storm is coming and we're gonna figure out how to close the shutters or to clear out the gutters Um, and you can kind of see them and I guess it made me cognizant that she's now a a single mother um, which is interesting to reflect on but i i guess in terms of like what you learn about her sons it it seems like they built a home where they they talked openly of his loss and there's there's a lot of little ways that she shows you the progression of time but there's um just a little moment where she writes about feeling like what is different about today and then under like realizing that she hadn't cried and oh, in fact yeah. nobody had cried mm-hmm. um and her son you know but then followed by the next day her son has this like huge emotional outburst and he mm-hmm. has the language to say like I was an 11 out of 10 in terms of feeling sad about dad. And then you get this like little portrait of a, like a passage of time of him going, but after my cry, I'm now a six. And then he hops into the shower and he's like, now I'm a three and, and now I feel okay. And so you do get this beautiful sense that they have a home where they just, they're, you know, they're talking about it and processing it and finding ways to, to measure it which is just beautiful um and and they do have this wonderful community of of men and women who Mm. just circle around them and like the basketball coach like you talked about they have this this woman who alexander writes is teaching them to like grow into their fullness and to both like make meaning of their physicality in a sports setting, but also thinking about what that means in the broader world as, as black men. Um, Yeah. 
don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I guess I, I, I hadn't really thought too much about the fact that they must have had in place some system of talking about it. So when you said the thing about the scene where he says, you know, my, my grief is at an 11 out of 10, or I don't think he uses the word grief. I mm -hmm. sadness or you know something. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, I do remember like, Oh, today feels different because for the first time in nine months, nobody has cried. Mm -hmm. And you think about like, wow, nine months of crying every day because you lost somebody. So yeah, they must, they must have been able to like process through it in a particular way. And, I guess we're we're in such a culture where we don't like to talk about grief and loss. It's very mm -hmm. hard for us, I think, culturally, mm -hmm. to do that. That the book feels important because it helps us to think about what it might be like to go through that cycle ourselves. Mm -hmm. Or to reflect on when we have gone through it and to even think about grieving as a part of the living process. Like she sort of says in the afterward, right? None of us will escape right. a tremendous loss whenever that loss comes. So. Hmm. She does. I, I think I probably make her a hero in my head. Um, but there is a moment when she's reflecting that she would go to the garden or other private spaces just to kind of like, lose herself for a second mm -hmm. um and finding out after the fact like her son's saying like we heard you crying every time um so it, it does it does feel like something that she herself had to like even with all the language that they had to talk about it that it was still it's, it's just like an imperfect well, another thing she talked about that I thought was really intriguing was the the whole thing about she she's obviously not religious, right? Mm -hmm. Religion doesn't come up too much in the book, but there are these moments where she says, you know, I I come from a non-religious background and now that I'm grieving, I wish that I had the language Mm -hmm. or the or the process of grieving right. from a religious tradition mm -hmm. it's very fleeting it makes you think about like what the role of religion and spirituality is in the grieving process and she obviously didn't have it minus like this in, minus this run in with the the priest but mm -hmm. you know this is kind of a you know she says well it wasn't really Fierkra's. It wasn't really my, like, we just did it for our kids type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I, I do appreciate you bringing up the whole thing about, like, her crying in the garden. Or even, you know, to go back to the dream thing where she said, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I would get the kids ready every day. And then I would go back to bed and I would try to, like, fall back asleep. I would cry myself back to sleep when the kids were out of the house and then try to dream so that I could be with Fikra again. And I was like, mm. oh my God, <laughs> like, you know, so sad. <laughs> like, oh, I know. Oh, it's terribly sad. I know. Yeah, I, I think, like, 
the the solidity of religious protocol around death that she writes about is like there's there's comfort in the like someone passed we're gonna sit shiva or you know like whatever right. your religion or and her desire for that and just like that that's something that's like tangible or that that to me is how i interpreted that of, of wanting a, a, a longing for something that was solid and that there were protocols around and she had to build that for herself in the absence of religion exactly i wanted to in in sort of a shift mm. i i wanted to ask you about this second quote that you pulled out um, and I, and I do like this part of the book. Um, but I wonder if you would read it and just talk about why this is something you pulled out. Mm -hmm. So the passage is from page 73 and um, she writes, we knew somehow that it was her, as I now know, the ravenous hawk came to take Fikre. Do I believe that? Yes, I do. Poetic logic is my logic. And this is coming in a broader context of they see a fox, I believe. And a red fox. Yes. And like in that fox, they are confident that that is Fikre's mother or spirit of Fikre's mother. Mm -hmm. And um, prior to his death, there's a hawk that continues to come to the garden and Fikre is enamored with this bird and has videos of it. And she later finds that he was trying to make like all these acrostics from it. And, um, but this, this hawk came to like take on this, um, level of relationship to him. And, and she believes that this hawk is, is Fikre or came to usher him into, into death. Um, and I guess for me, I just, I loved that this was one of several vignettes that she offers into what she calls poetic logic. But for me, was this broader relationship or um, fluidity that she, but also their family has between um, like almost like, I guess spiritualism is the word that I want to have for it balanced with science that there's this like, and I guess poetic logic is a nice term for it in this, like it doesn't follow any sort of rules of science or physics or, you know, what we know to be like quote unquote real, but for her it's real and she believes it and it like it grounds her in her relationship to her husband and there's another another passage where um with the birth of her son a friend gives her an evil eye and tells her to tuck it in his blankets um and then a family member gets sick and they have like the evil eye up on the wall and then nih on the speed dial you know, to research clinical trials. And so I just 
for me, I think I probably fall mm. into that as well. And so I just, I like, I love that. Like something that someone else who is maybe more like, it must be scientific, um, but just like the sense of comfort that can come with and like that hawk ushered my husband into death and like her relationship to that hawk and to these kind of this willingness to believe in something that's spiritual. I don't know. I, I just, I, I loved that and this idea of poetic logic. Yeah, I loved it too. I mean, it's interesting to hear you speak about it in terms of the relationship between science and what I would call like mythology or she does say poetic logic, but you know, there's, there's something about this book in relation to also lawn time is what I call it. The ancestors, the mm-hmm. historical relationship to Eritrea, for example, right? Mm-hmm. There's even this scene where she talks, talks about, you know, her and Figre getting, falling in love and getting married is this, this wedding between East Africa and West Africa, because they come from different parts of the continent. They got here differently, right? Fikra is yeah. a refugee from the Ethiopian Eritrean uh, War for Independence. Her family got here through slavery and then eventually had purchased their independence. Yeah. Um, so this, this connection of time feels so important to me in the book. And I, like her, believe in all of that kind of stuff, like these animals, these plants that you become like part of the spirit of the planet. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, was, it was really lovely. But then that is juxtaposed with, like you said, for example, the cardiologist giving her like the hard facts, like what we know as hard scientific facts about like, he had heart disease. All four of his arteries were clogged at 90 mm-hmm. to 95%. He had a heart attack and died. He was dead before you got to him. But still there's the soul stuff that we talked about, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. but his soul is still there. There's something about that. So she does a really beautiful job for me of pulling, putting those things into tension and mm-hmm. making you think that, all of it can be true simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. What about, um, I want to make sure I get to all your quotes here. Mm. Your first quote, right from the beginning of the book, Mm-hmm. So on uh, page three, I think it actually might be the first page of the story. What's that? I, I think this is literally the second sentence from the It's book. the second sentence in the book. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's perfect. It's um, wonderful. She writes, perhaps tragedies are only tragedies in the presence of love which confers meaning to loss. Loss is not felt in the absence of love. Mm -hmm. 
and to me I, I i think that's you know encapsulated in so much of what we've talked about that this both in the piece around it's as much about death as it is about life yeah um but that this book is only so devastating because there there is there's so much love that is just like so palpable throughout this book that for you you know this is a tragedy for her um and and yeah just that those two are in conversation that it it feels like a tragedy because there is so much love and that that's giving meaning to her grief what does the book tell us about love well and i saw in your notes like you you made a note that like she doesn't use the word love very much it's really not in the book that much it's very minimal and yet you feel the intensity of the love Right. It's one of the parts of the book that I most appreciated. Yeah. I I do as well. Um and I guess I'm trying to figure out what I want to say about it. And on the in one of the other passages that we've already talked about this idea of sacred love. Mm-hmm. Um but when she meets him um i think it okay i'm gonna tell a side story i was curious and i went on goodreads because i find rankings just like impossible and most often i don't do it but i was really curious about what people who read this and gave it a one star thought because for me it was such a profound book. Oh, fascinating. Um, okay. So I read the one star or I read it before. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. And a lot of times people were like, this perfect husband dies. And you know, it's just like this glorification of this man. And I think in the hands of a less skilled writer or maybe with less nuance i could a hundred percent see that but because like it isn't like this like amplified love story like because there is so much nuance it it's it's about their love but it's not, I don't, I'm, I'm not being coherent, but like, it's just like, you get to see like the, the depth in it that, um, that there were so many layers to this narrative that like, it is a love story, but it, it's not just that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell you what I thought. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's go there. <laughs> First of all, I love that you went and read the one-star reviews um, because I agree with you. Sometimes if you love a book and somebody doesn't, you really want to know what, what's up with it, you know, or vice versa. Sometimes you rate something one or two and you're like, why did these people rate it five? Um, 
I appreciated that she didn't make this into a, it could have been a very sappy, I loved him so much, mm-hmm. he was perfect, all this kind of stuff. And he is painted as this, like we said, almost otherworldly man. Mm-hmm. He's, he's almost mythical to me in terms mm-hmm. of who he is as a person. Yeah. But the, what I learned about love and what I think people could take away from this book about love is that love is in the everyday. Mm-hmm. Love is in the making of lentil soup. Mm-hmm. Love is in the planting of flowers that are guaranteed to bloom on your birthday. Yeah. Love is in picking the kids up or you know, even that last day, when the day that he dies, there's this reading that's going to happen on campus. And it was her day to pick up the kids from, from the basketball practice or whatever they were doing. And he says, oh, no, you go to the reading and I'll pick the kids up and you enjoy the reading, right? Mm-hmm. So it just felt like love was in these everyday acts of existence. And I Mm -hmm. think that we so often get caught up in this kind of mythical idea that love is about, you know, they do, you know, there is the thing about they fell in love at first sight. They had these six glorious weeks together where they were like making love all the time and like (laughs) listening, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And of course, right. But but that's not really the emphasis of the book. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought that love is like this beautiful everyday thing. It's even in the color schemes. It's in the shirt that he wears, you know, the music he plays, even, even the little tiny details, which I appreciated about like, Oh, when he dreams, he sometimes talks in his sleep, but he talks in his native tongue. And we used to stand there and watch and listen for him. And that's love. That's Mm -hmm. what love is. The little Mm -hmm. things that no one else knows about. I just, I thought that was really well done and really beautiful. When she talks about meeting him for the first time, Mm -hmm. she has a friend who doesn't show up for their coffee date and he walks over and she describes it as like this torque, like she felt like a little torque in her, Mm. which in some ways is like a love at first sight, which I tend to like, well, okay. Um, But I, I, I just love that it's just like this little gentle, like just a little torque and, and recognizing that feeling in her and like this cord emerging between the two of them and that it wasn't like my whole life changed the second our eyes met like it was it was just this gentle little like I met him and like she felt that 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 little torque um now what did you think about the part of that story though where she talks about going to see the psychic and mm -hmm. the psychic tells her that she's going to meet this man and mm-hmm. this is going to be the man that she's with. And I don't know. I wondered what you thought about that <laughs> in relation to omens and superstition and other things that we talked about with the animals and the plants mm-hmm. and stuff that come up in the book. 
I think it just fit within that overarching like lens of life that like she was open to. <laughs> I I don't know. I wonder if like it did give her the like if it it made her open to the possibilities of that. Right. Like, would she, would she have even entertained him if that had not happened? And if she had not met the playwright mm, that the mm-hmm. psychic also said that she mm-hmm. would meet right. randomly. Hmm. Yeah. There's, um, to our, our conversation around love on page 76, there's mm-hmm. a passage Um, where she writes, um, each of us made it possible for the other. We got Mm. something done. Each believed in the other unsurpassingly. In all marriages, there is struggle, and ours was no different in that regard. But we always came to the other shore, dusted off, and said, there you are, my love. Yeah. And... I mean, I'm pretty sure my book is like waterlogged. (laughs) But I think that that vision of a, of a partnership of a, and like you said that, that the day before he passed of his being like, of course you have to be at that presenter. Like you have to be there. Um, And I, I think that for me was what made their love feel sacred and and really special and reflects you know in my own partnerships and friendships of like how do we make each other's dreams possible or just you know like our 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 day-to-days possible and how do we see each other and even when there's struggle to be able to come back and like have that foundation of love I yeah, and I think love rooted in friendship, like, again, right. sort of taught on page 133, this pretty long paragraph about, and it sort of builds on what you said, it, you know, you said, at the end of the day, we always came to the other shore and said, there you are, my love. And, you know, but there's also this idea of friendship in marriage. And it yeah. seemed like they were a mutually supportive partnership. Even when they're talking about, this goes back to your quote, right? We made, it, we made it possible for the other person to live out their own kind of, to pursue their own dreams, right? I mean, he, he was able to do hundreds of paintings and photography and lithographs and other things that he had this artistic studio that he would go to Mm -hmm. she was able to write all these books of poetry and essay and and there is a certain quantification to that over the course of their 15 or 16 year marriage there is like a a chapter where you know she Mm. does quantify everything right it's like you know it it how many diapers did we change? How many this did we do? How many of yeah. that did we do? And, but also like their own personal goals and ambitions. Mm-hmm. And that's why to me, the book is so profoundly about love. Mm. 
Because they didn't steal anything from the other person. They didn't mm-hmm. shut them down. It was, it, it's, it's really, really beautiful. It is. Really beautiful. This other quote that you had was um, quote number four from page 120. Hmm. Why did you pull this out? Do you want me to read it? Yeah, I'd love for you to read it so that I can hear you in your own tenor. Mm. Um, Alexander writes, my soul does indeed look back in wonder. I had Fikre. I have Fikre. I have these extraordinary children. I have a village. I have an art form. I am black. We are African. We come from survivors and doers. My parents are wise and strong. Mm. My body is strong. I was loved without bound or condition. I exist in time and in context, not floating in space. My troubles are small compared to some. My troubles are not eternal. My days are not through. I loved this passage um, and it's on page 120. I, I loved this passage for a number of different reasons, but it it reminded me almost of a grounding exercise Mm. like sometimes um in mindfulness exercises i've had where they're like you know name three things you see name three things you can hear and for me it had that like the repetitive kind of calling of each Mm. of these things of I had Fikre, I have Fikre, and like naming all of these qualities that are what are going to allow her to survive this, I thought was just like incredibly powerful. And there's like the piece of her, her racial and cultural legacy and her community and her art and just this assurance that Fikre is gone, but I had this like beautiful time with him where I was, and just like this assurance that I was loved without bound or condition. Mm-hmm. Like, like the, like that statement alone, like just like for all of us to be able to say so confidently, I was loved without bound or condition. I just thought was so profound and beautiful. And for all of those reasons, I, it just felt like a turning point of her, like, my days are not through. And she has, like, all of these different reasons for her ability to know that and to know that she's going to, her, her days are not through. Oh, so you saw it as, like, a psychological or, like, a morning turning point in terms of, I'll overcome this. I think it could be.
Yeah, I, I, to me, it read of a woman who is, who is going through, I mean, like, it, to me, it sounds poetic. I think it could, like, I could just as easily see this being a list, like, in someone's journal, of, like, here are all the reasons that I'm going to be able to keep going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Did you read it differently? No, I don't. Meaning of it differently? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think that one of the well, again, going back to another thing that this book does that I think is very profound is that it tries to connect art and culture in what I call long time or historical time. I mean, in this passage that you just read, she talks about her parents. And there's this beautiful relationship with all the parent figures in the book. Very minor, right? Mm -hmm. Not a focus of the book. But her parents living in D.C. comes up. His parents come up as well, particularly his mother, Mm -hmm. who he seems to miss, and his siblings. So there's this thing about the family relationship across space and time. There's the thing about the ancestors. And yeah, one of the lines that I thought was really sad in the book was, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it's something to the effect of, you know, Fikre was supposed to be an elder, Mm. but his days were too short or something. They were too Mm -hmm. short. So something about like the worldliness and the wisdom. And I think it connects back to all of this stuff about what the function of art is in our life. And that goes to the title of the book for me because the title of the book is from this epigraph or from this line of poetry by Derek Walcott. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's in, it's in the epigraph, uh, three mm-hmm. things here. Um, but it's the middle one. Oh, beauty, you are the light of the world. Mm-hmm. So the book for me says so much about what is the function of art and beauty in being, not just in our daily lives, but I think also in being able to deal with grief. Mm-hmm. Because I think about, there's that, there's that chapter in the middle, Emma, where she, it's a week after Fikre died and she decides to go and give this, this lecture to mm-hmm. her students. It's the last week of the semester. She, yeah. She's like, I've got to do it. I've built this relationships with these students. She goes back to campus. She's teaching at Yale. She gives this beautiful, beautiful uh, insight into art and why it's important and how it sustains us. Mm -hmm. And that of course ties to his role, Fikre's role as a painter. Even these pictures on the cover are clearly his paintings. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that I just, when I read that quote, I'm reading it as, you know, the importance of art the importance of cultural heritage, the importance of being from Africa, Mm, the mm -hmm. fact that 
if we've survived all of this stuff, if we've survived slavery, if we've survived a civil war in Eritrea, if we've survived having to be a refugee and live in Italy, Germany, Sudan, mm-hmm. Canada, and the United States, then we can survive this loss as well. You know, mm-hmm. so I think there's that there's this, she doesn't say any of that blatantly in the book. Mm-hmm. It's just the underpinning to me of what is important about the text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I really loved about it. We didn't really talk about this, but another thing the book brings up is this idea of, and maybe it ties to history a little bit or long time. Where do stories begin? Where do they end? How do, how do you, for you, like, did you ruminate on that question at all? It, it seems to be something that definitely comes up particularly in the very first chapters where she says Mm -hmm. a lot of the sentences start with the story might begin Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. or the story might begin here. And Mm -hmm. there are these wildly different timeframes. I thought it was an interesting framing device. And then at the end in the afterwards, she talks about like why stories are so important and how stories connect us as Mm -hmm. humans when, you know, that she wasn't really writing this book from the perspective of just her own grief, but she was mm-hmm. writing it so that other people would would have a way to relate to the contents of it. Mm-hmm. Did you think about any of that at all? or I think because there is such a, it is such a, like, signaled story device or a signaled narrative device she kind of like requires that you at least grapple with it a little mm-hmm. um one of the things that i thought about when she's cleaning out his studio mm. um she describes you know among his like 800 plus paintings there were mm. collages that he sometimes did collage art and i almost thought of this the first section of the book like one of those collages like she's telling you she's she is building this kind of supra story from all of these little entrances into the story might begin here but maybe you really have to go back to their births and these two mothers who are carrying elizabeth and fikre in completely different pieces of the world. But then maybe it also starts here. And so I, I thought she is, she is playing with this idea of, of where does the story of a, of a partnership begin or where do you begin to tell the story of their, of their relationship? Is it with that torque or is it with him being born in Eritrea and her being born in Harlem. Um, or maybe it's, and, and then, you know, they're like, they're star signs. Um, 
Oh, the astrology thing does come up, doesn't it? Because he's born on March 21st, which, and I didn't know this, but that's apparently the the magical day in the astrological calendar is March mm-hmm. 21st. It's the last day of the astro- astrological year and the first day of the astrological mm-hmm. year. So this idea again of he's painted as this timeless figure, right? He's both old and new. Yeah. Whoever loved a child that. And, yeah. Or like, you know, when you were saying the thing about, yeah, does it begin with the mothers and them being in other places? And I, Again, it's not explicit, but I was thinking when he was sort of talking a little bit or she was talking about him talking about the history of his country, Mm. Eritrea, and the way that it was colonized in a particular way and Mm. the way that the city that he grew up in was built and then how that ended up becoming, the, the word compound gets used during the war right? Mm. He, he grew mm-hmm. up in a compound. Mm-hmm. So all of that stuff makes you really think about, yeah, where does the story actually begin? And, and I think you can also connect that to, again, this phrase of he had drank his water. and Oh, yeah, he was sated, I think is the word that she uses, yeah. which I think is lovely. For him to to be the person that she meets and has that profound connection with all of these different pieces of his story had to happen. And so if you only begin at that, that meeting at the cafe, there are pieces of that story that aren't going to be told or, you know, it, it fails to account for all of those prior stories that made him this remarkable otherworldly human that he appears to have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are your kind of takeaways, your final takeaways from the book? What would you tell people this book? Why should they read it? what's important about it. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably just like make noises. (laughs) Just do it. (laughs) But I guess it probably depends on the person, like always. But, you know, like if her... Like I grew up with a father who watched Hallmark movies and would cry every single time. So Mm. I'd probably give this book to him and be like, this is just an impossibly beautiful love story. And then for others, I think it, like in some ways it could be read as a grief manual. Like, I don't know. I just think this book has everything. (laughs) That's why I love it so much is that for me, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it back on the shelf with this firmer belief that you can lead a beautiful, incredible life and that it happens, like you said, in those daily 
moments. And I think in my own partnership, it, it does make me, I am a person who loves checklists and order and safety. Um, and that, and that partnership is, is in, I think unsettling that a little bit, but also that it can be in that daily order in those quiet moments in the garden in the morning of, of how you build a friendship or a partnership, you know, whatever the case might be in, in seeing each other. Mm. Yeah. I think I'm taking away from the book that first of all, one should really be intentional mm. about living their life in a certain with a certain type of beauty. Mm. Mm-hmm. The parts of the book that I just loved the most were all this stuff about cooking. I mean, there's even recipes in the book, right? I'm going to yeah. try to make some of these meals because they sound so delicious. Famous shrimp barca. Yeah, I'm going to try to make the shrimp barca, I promise. I I'm, and I'm going to post it on the Instagram page. Um, <laughs> you know, because it sounds delicious. Um, mm-hmm. These sauces and all this kind of stuff, you know, wonderful. And I'm not a cook. So anything where people celebrate food and they like unite around food is is always to me something i wish that i had more Mm. i wish i did it more but i Mm -hmm. just don't make the time to cook because i spend my time doing all kinds of other crap i'd rather be reading yeah i'd rather be reading or like (laughs) you know i'm trying to like listen to a thousand podcasts or whatever Mm -hmm. um but all of that stuff uh, about living your life intentionally, even the things like the coffee ceremonies, mm. the the music he would listen to, laughing with the kids, having a sleepover mm-hmm. with your kids in bed, uh, mm-hmm. in their bed. Um, I just, I really loved those parts of the book. And then all the art stuff, you know, Mm-hmm. poetry we didn't really talk too much about this but there there's poetry all throughout the book um, yeah. and how poetry can really impact us I don't know if you want to talk about that at all well see this is why I was nervous about this like there, there's inherently going to be something that we don't talk about that will just feel like well so it's critical. fine you know yeah but I think this this piece that you're talking about and that I also really resonated with is like their home almost becomes like this other character in the book that they had this wonderfully open home that was just yes. always prepared for a guest. Like she describes like bringing someone home unexpectedly and the tea kettle was on already and he had 
laid out almonds and he was just like the lights were all on and they were just like ready and I think I'm I am in like by nature just not that type of a person but I Mm -hmm. left this book like and I know that for my partner it it really is like he has grown up very communally and so Mm. like thinking about like how do we build a home that is you like prepared for other people for our community but then also like infused with all of this beauty and like whatever that beauty might be for you like what color of your walls will remind you of home and like what poetry will help you like find these daily like to help you make meaning of your world and so I, that's the takeaway that I'm leaving of like, how do we build our homes and, and communities that are infused by beauty? And yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, I have always wanted to live in a house where people can just come and go mm-hmm. and where you like, and I still have this dream of wanting to own a home someday and have guest bedroom and, you know, whoever wants to come and stay can come and stay and we have dinner and yeah, you know, these beautiful scenes in the book where they're eating together or, oh, see, we didn't talk about this either. The, um, <laughs> the, like the feast of the seven fishes where they just decided like they're not religious. Right. And this is kind of like an Italian religious tradition. I had to look it up cause I'd never heard of it, but they just decide, Oh, we're going to do this thing. We're going to, or, or where they go on these trips, for example, they just mm-hmm. decide that they're going to go on this cross country. Well, they didn't really just decide it was Solomon's 13th birthday present that they were going to go on this cross country road trip Mm -hmm. and they visit all the civil rights landmarks and they Mm -hmm. sleep out under the stars and then they end up in Oakland and they, they, they crisscross the country and they just do it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that I have that kind of mentality personally, Mm -hmm. but I think we're in the opposite place actually like my partner I think so your partner is more communal and you're more not and I think in my relationship I'm much more communal I'm like sure whoever wants to come over and my Mm -hmm. partner I would say is maybe less inclined to that Mm -hmm. um I don't know Uh, it's Mm -hmm. the sense I get Mm -hmm. if he listens to this he might argue with me about it but um (laughs) but I do kind of love that. I want that openness. I want the music. I want the color. Mm-hmm. I want the flowers picked out of the garden in the morning on my birthday. Yeah. With the, you know. Yeah. It's just lovely way to think about living. And some of it's big. Like they did, they made those ceremonies. Like they just created ceremonies for their family, which is just like a concept that I just adore. Like when you turn 13, like, like what is the ceremony that you want us to go through with you? And they go on those big trips, but it is like the, um, like that passage I had pulled out. It is in those small, like 
little daily practices of beauty of like a dandelion cluster that's in a little glass of water. It is like, it, it, it's both grand, but it's also small and daily. Yeah. Or like, you know, another thing that just popped into my head was this, um, these two things that happened in the book with Fikre where one is, I think he's doing an interview for a food magazine or something, and they must be doing it in their kitchen. Mm. And I think that the interviewer asks him something like, if, if your house was going to be destroyed, mm-hmm. what would you take? And he says, oh, I would take this piece of art from Simon. Mm-hmm. And it's like a watercolor that, that he had painted when he was nine years old or whatever. You know? and, he, mm-hmm. and he says something about, you know, house can be replaced, all the material can be replaced, but Simon will never be nine again. And he'll yeah. never paint that painting again. There's also all these discoveries that she makes along the way of remember. As she goes through the mourning process, she learns so much more about him. Mm -hmm. And I think that she finds this file on his computer of this poem that he had written. Mm -hmm. And she gives it to Solomon because it's a poem about Solomon. So even that idea of and this goes back to our earlier conversation regarding when is, when is someone gone? Mm. I, I really did appreciate her whole way of, of thinking about like, even though his physical body is gone, mm-hmm. I was still learning things about him mm-hmm. even after he died. And not bad things, right? Like sometimes people, sometimes you think, oh, I'm going to find out all this bad stuff about somebody I was with after they die. But these were all like beautiful things that she discovered about him. And I'm sure she probably discovered bad things too, but um, not important for the book. (laughs) Or maybe he really was just this perfect character and I don't, I don't know. There, there is sort of this unsettling of like, he is someone who you can tell she just like, she profoundly feels so assured that she knew him. Like he was, she was the person that he told all of his internal thoughts to. But like, as she is going through her grief process, like he still finds ways to surprise her. Like she finds all of these lottery tickets in his. Oh, I love that. Tucked away in pages of books and I I just love that like even for someone who like you can know so intensely and intimately like there are still pieces that like someone won't know about us or like there's still like an element of unknowability or surprise that is still there yeah I love that and yeah with the lottery tickets I mean I think the whole thing about even It's amazing you could be in the same space with someone for 15 years and not know that they, I mean, I think she knew that he liked the lottery Uh because I think there is something, wasn't there a scene where she says something like, oh, when you go to a foreign country, you're supposed Mm -hmm. to buy a lottery ticket in that country. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's supposed to be this kind of, again, sort of 
what is the word I'm looking for? Superstition that maybe you would win the lottery in another mm-hmm. country type of thing. It's like this ultimate expression of hope. <laughs> well, just winning the lottery. As an outlook, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of like, you know, with the lottery tickets is kind of really the only time that you see maybe this side of Firkra where he is frustrated because I think that it does seem like the way that those last lottery tickets are painted in the story is that he he rushes out to go buy them. Yeah. And then they don't win. And right. he seems frustrated by that. And in the book, it's painted as he has this premonition Mm-hmm. of his oncoming death. And that's along mm-hmm. with the hawk eating the squirrels and all the other stuff that's going on. Yeah. Um, do you think we, do you think, I'm just curious about your belief system in that. Do you think that we have premonitions about our own demise? I grew up in a household with a mother who was intensely religious and also like intensely practical. She was an ER nurse. And so she was very like matter of fact of like, this is how life works. But she also, and I think this is why like this piece of the book resonated a lot with me. She would just like wake up on mornings, like certain mornings and she'd be like, we need to go buy a scratch it. And she would just have like, like a dream or like something had triggered for her that like, we need to buy a scratch it ticket. And like, like sometimes it paid for my textbooks (laughs) sometimes it I don't know it was just so weird so I would say in general yes I I do I I do believe I don't know like specific to our like the end of our life but I that sort of like confidence or like even when it seems like there shouldn't be confidence in like something like a we need to go buy a scratch a ticket I do think I've been like that script has been laid for me um I'm willing to believe it yeah yeah me too I just I think he he knew something potentially Mm mm-hmm Well, the book is so beautiful. It's, you should read it despite the, the fact that it will make you cry <laughs> uncontrollably <laughs> at, po- at points, um, mm. especially if you're not a crier. It's, it's really, it's, it's written so beautifully. You like the audiobook version? Does she do a good job reading? Sometimes authors don't do a good job reading their own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I did like it. I would lean towards reading it on paper. That said. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, most things are better read on paper. Mm-hmm. Or if you're going to listen to it. You don't agree with that? Not always. You listen to a lot of audiobooks? I have in uh, quarantine. I am usually a solid, like two or three audiobooks a month. Really? Mm hmm. How do you do that? Um, I'm, 
I multitask. So you can do it while doing other things and you still get the same amount out of a book? I'm, I'm very careful about the type of book that I do on audiobook. Um, but especially lately when I've had a, yeah, it's so I find like, I just love walking and walking and walking mm-hmm. and listening to an audiobook or, um, doing a puzzle or sometimes chores. Like I find it very relaxing and it's been a really good antidote for my, my anxiety. Yeah. I don't do everything. Like I don't do um, a lot of nonfiction. I find it's really fun to reread because I'm not trying to like capture every single detail. Um, I like it that way. But like, for example, like Trevor Noah's book, I read that. Mm -hmm. I read that for the first time by audio. And for me, it was a completely different experience than reading it on paper. Like I just loved like hearing his impersonation of his mom. And I don't know, for me, it was a much richer experience hearing it from him than me reading it in my own head voice. Yeah, that's a good example. I'll have to, you know, I, audiobooks are not my jam. Uh, I find them very difficult. The only, I'm doing my second kind of experiment with this right now, actually. So the uh-huh. first time that I listened to an audiobook was last summer. Okay. And it was for Marlon James's Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Oh. And the only reason I decided to do that was because so, I was just flipping through the book before I read it. And so many of the character names and place names and stuff, I was like, I don't know how to say any of this. And so it'll distract me. Uh So I said, let me try this. So I listened to the audio book while reading at the same time. Like Mm -hmm. um, that was what I did. So now I'm reading another book where I'm doing that same thing. I'm reading Chigozi Obiyama's book, An Orchestra of Minorities. And it's the same thing because I felt like so many of the character names and so many of the ideas are just not in my language ability that I was like, I just need to listen to it. Mm -hmm. I would say I'm having a harder time Mm -hmm. doing that with this book than I did with Marlon James's book. And I don't know if it's the narrator Mm -hmm. or if maybe the book is not as difficult as I thought. And so now I feel like it's plodding along. I'm like, Oh, I still have 15 hours of this. Like I could read this a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So I don't know like if I should finish that experience or if I should just finish plowing through the book now that I have a sense of like the characters names and stuff. Yeah. But I spent mm. money on the audiobook, so I'm like, well, I should probably, oh, like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, I should probably <laughs> listen to it because I spent the money. Yeah. Um, There's that. But yeah, I mean, like, I feel like listening for me, even podcast listening, I can't do it. I could do it when I was driving, mm-hmm. but I don't drive anywhere now. Where right. the hell am I going to go? Right. Um. So 
now when I, even when I listen to podcasts, I can't be doing anything else. I have to like mm. build the time into my schedule to mm-hmm. be like, oh, this hour I'm going to listen to this podcast and I'm just going to sit and listen mm-hmm. so I'm not distracted. Yeah. Like for example, tonight I will be listening to the first episode of Michelle Obama's new podcast. <gasps> um, have you listened to it? I haven't yet. Yeah. Well, I want to hear it. I don't know if I'm going to become like a dedicated listener or not, but right. I kind of want to hear Michelle and Barack again, mm-hmm. and given the fuckery that we're dealing with in this country right now. I can't. Mm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we missed anything? I'm sure we did. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I... Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure we did, but I, I loved this conversation. It felt really expansive and beautiful. It felt really what? Expansive and beautiful. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for bringing the book to me. Mm. Uh, as I text you, it's, it's like a gift. Mm. Um, it's, it's so lovely and I enjoyed the talk. I enjoyed reading Alexander's words. I'll carry the book with me. I have my notes, all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. So yeah. I appreciate you coming on and I hope you'll continue to be a fan of the podcast. Of course. I'm always looking for more book podcasts. Well, I love it. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much.